going elsewhere. Really, they wouldn't want me to spend my money there if they wouldn't want me here. South Florida losing travel business. Is it politics or perception? A parting shot about running out of room for the trash. I think it's an alarmist letter. But I don't think the delay is as great as maybe inferred. What's the plan? When? And for whose neighborhood? I wanted to sit in Alex's chair. Seeing the blood of my daughter, Alyssa. You know, you really get a sense of what that must have felt like. The family saw firsthand school insecurity back in focus. And now the subject of an instruction book for school. The big news of the week, all live this week in South Florida. Hello, hello, good Sunday morning. I'm Glenna Milberg. We begin this hour with what may be the first clear sign of real dollars and cents consequences of Florida's politically charged atmosphere. Over the hundreds of new laws on the books in the last few months, the ones that go to what's called the culture wars have been getting almost all the attention in and out of state. The governor's campaign for president only supercharged that attention. In May, the NAACP put out a travel advisory. Organizers said that was in protest over what they called anti-civil rights moves like restrictions on African-American history lessons and diversity training. That advisory was cited by at least one group called a Parent Miracles Foundation that decided not to bring its business, its repeat business, an annual event to Broward County this year. And that organization is now one of 10 on a spreadsheet of groups who are taking their convention business elsewhere. That was compiled by Stacy Ritter, president and CEO of Visit Lauderdale, which is Broward's uh, official tourism marketing agency and has been way longer than you've even <laughs> been with it. So happy to have you at the table with us today. Thank you. Thank Thanks you for, for the coming invitation. In. My pleasure. I, I want to just kind of set up our conversation. This is not about politics. We are not, we are not partisan. You are not a partisan organization. So this is not about a political discussion. It's about an economic discussion. And you're really seeing the effects of that. Tell me why you compiled that list. Well, we compile a list uh, at Visit Lauderdale of group business that we win and lose and have been doing it since at least I've been there for seven years. So this is not something new. We always write down the reasons groups either choose not to come or the business we win, why they've, they've chosen to come. So this isn't new for us. Uh, but this specifically has become an issue. It started as a trickle last year. A couple of people can't, a couple of groups canceled last year after last year's session, and the trickle has become more pronounced this year. But yes, this is not a partisan conversation. Tourism transcends politics. People travel where they like to go, mm -hmm. regardless of who's in charge. This is about business. So, all right, so let me just understand you are compiling lists with the reasons. The, what we saw, I guess it's because what I asked for, <laughs> is the list of, of, it was nine, and this weekend was another um, a joint radio show was added this weekend so it's now 10 is is the list bigger of groups that have opted out for other reasons sure Tell sure. me about that. Uh, we lose business whether because maybe the convention center is too small for the group. Maybe we don't have enough hotel rooms within the vicinity that the group wants. Maybe the price is too high. Maybe they choose not to have a beach destination. They want to go someplace else. Um, and and one of the groups that we've lost went to Milwaukee, which was really like why <laughs> <laughs> they don't have a beach, people. They don't have no, a beach. Well, um, I don't know. Milwaukee's on the lake. Isn't they it? don't have a beach. Come on, <laughs> let's be real. Um, so. so 
it's just something that we do so that for the next time when we reach out to that group, which we often do, or if a request for proposal comes from the group again, we can be mindful of why they didn't choose us back in whatever and work on getting that business going forward. That's, Negotiating that's the sell price. of it. Yes, of yes. It. And, and the fact that we are expanding our convention center, we've got a billion and a half dollar project at the convention center where we're building an 801 room Omni Hotel as well and expanding to the east will allow us to bring, bring, bring bigger conferences to Broward County, conferences we weren't able to get before. I mean, clearly, j your organization sells Broward County <laughs> to tourism. That is what you do, right? I mean, our, that is, that's what you do. Our mission is to bring visitors to Broward County. Yeah. But we like to say that our calling is to keep people employed. Oh, okay. <laughs> we, well, we saw what happened when the, when the pandemic hit. Yes. Tens of thousands of people lost their jobs, many of them in tourism. Of course. We're talking hotels and restaurants and attractions, yeah. retail, uh, and so we need to keep people employed so that Broward's economic engines keep moving and people can feed their families and they can pay their bills and they can have the dignity and respect that work provides. Yeah. So that's what we think we do best. So so now we have this component and I want to get your perspective on these um, these groups that are that have some have actually canceled some have just not chosen mm -hmm. the booking wasn't there and they've just decided against do you think the ones that cited things like politics or a partisan atmosphere do you think uh, in your perspective, was actual politics or partisanship, or was it the perception of all of that in the national atmosphere right now, particularly because the governor is running for president and, and it is in his purview to do what he needs to do nationwide, which he's doing. Politics or perception of Florida, what do you think? Well, there are 20 million people who live in our beautiful state. Uh, we don't all think like one, we're not monolithic. So, uh, but certainly the spotlight has moved to Florida more intensely these days because of the political environment. Yeah. That does play into people's perceptions, and people's perceptions are reality these days. But we're not doing anything differently than we've been doing for 30 years. You know, Broward County, I, re I recently read an article that suggested Broward County is more diverse than the island of Manhattan. Two million people, 170 nations represented by our residents. They speak 147 languages. Diversity and culture is in our DNA. We celebrate it. We want you to celebrate it. And, you so. know, I was, I was going to ask you because I noticed that uh, some of, I was looking up the people who were getting the emails in your organization, and one of the employees has the title Multicultural Business Development. So clearly there is an eye to bring in a diverse population of visitors. Yes, we also have a dedicated LGBTQ plus um, d department called inclusive, Inclusivity and Accessibility. And we were the first CVB in the world to have an LGBTQ plus dedicated department to bring in the gay population to come to visit a diverse, inclusive, and accessible destination. We're not doing anything any differently, but the spotlight is shining more brightly. So what are you hearing personally? You pick up the phone rings, you pick <laughs> up that phone, and what do you, I mean, get, get granular with us and, and bring us in behind the scenes. Well, and, and I know this is a difficult conversation to have from someone who has, has a message. Respectfully, I know everyone wants to be shown in the best light, and, and I have no problem with that. But I think it's very important for us as a community to understand how people see our community and the economic consequences of that. People see our community as diverse and inclusive, as welcoming. That's a, as, that's a good thing. It's a wonderful thing because it is who we are. It's, it's not something that we've had to mold. It is something that it has evolved, and I hate this word, but it has evolved organically. When I moved to Broward County in 1974, when I was a baby. Me too. <laughs> I was not a baby. Uh, it was very white, very male-centered, very conservative, uh, very straight. 
And Broward County has evolved into a, what, and I know this is going to sound really corny. Well, I think that's a national thing we, as we well. Are a, we are a melting pot. I, I, I really truly believe that Broward County provides the American dream that people are looking for. We have a very large immigrant population and we celebrate that. So when you, okay, now back to the travel business, when you get those phone calls lately, and you said it started last year. It did. And, all right, well, take me through that. Why, why last year? At what point last year and what did you first see? It, it started uh, right after the legislative session of 22 with the first Don't Say Gay. So that would have been March. May, May, because the legislative, uh, wait, oh yeah, March, because last year last they met, year. Oh, correct, yeah. correct. Mm -hmm. So it started with that. And then there were some, there were some conversations with boards of directors about choice and how choice was being restricted in the state of Florida. And I talked to them about our destination. And yes, there are state politics that we cannot in, in any way affect in our particular, it, with our particular space. Was this, all right, no, I, don't, I just want to stop you so we, we understand why. Were those phone calls about people who were concerned for themselves or concerned with the politics or, C, concerned with the membership of their group and bringing a sense of that kind of dynamic into the group or none of the above or all of the above? Uh, uh, <laughs> All of the above, in part, uh, and and let's let's understand the group business, the conference business. They rely on attendees. In order to pay the costs and make some money, conferences have to have attendees. They have to have the registrations in in great numbers to be able to put on the event in the first place. Many of them are concerned that they won't get people coming here, that their conferences won't be successful if they're held in Florida and they won't get the number of attendees required. So that is in part, there are boards of directors. These are corporate folks who are also conscious of the greater story. They're very conscious about DEI these days and they don't want to suggest that they're, they're going to someplace to bring their business, which may not be as friendly to their core values as others. You know, we want to stop for a quick break, but I want to pick up right there when we come back because I have a few more questions about that from both sides of the political perspective. So stay tuned, we will be right back. President and CEO of Visit Lauderdale, the marketing arm, the visitor and convention bureau of sorts of Broward County, talking about the impact that the perception or the politics of Florida seem to be having on the convention business and the, and the visitor business. And you have that in black and white. And again, I want to set up that this is not a political <laughs> conversation. I want to make you comfortable being with us because I'm very grateful for your time. And I know Thank it's you. not an easy conversation to have. And our all, we have a very diverse political audience here and very engaged and also an audience that wants to see good things happen. We all have kind of the same goal. We all want good, right? How we get there might be a, a bit different, but we all want good things. But we were talking about the, um, the large number of people that are in a visit from a convention and the people who organize that have to make sure that all of them are gonna be happy and willing to spend their money here. And that means that there's gonna be a very wide political uh, perspective, a base of politi political perspectives in those groups. So it's not about this, we don't like this politics, is it? It's about how do we please the people? 
how do we please the attendees? How do we make sure that the registrations are sufficient, that the cost of the convention will be covered, and then, may, and then maybe some? Because they all rely on registrations in order to cover the costs. And it's important to also understand that group business books years in advance. So right now we're booking right. 26, 27, 28, 29, and 30. It's very difficult to cancel a convention in the year of the convention. Has that happened this time? No, because where do you go? Every place else will be booked up. So the 10 on the list that you, uh, for anyone just joining us, there's, there's a list of, of conventions that either opted out or have not chosen Broward. And the reasons of that and the, what we asked for in our public records request are the ones that have political reasons, and there's 10 of them. And so when you get these and you get that reason, what happens when it is in 2024? which is but right around the corner. It's unlikely that it would happen. Uh, 2024 is usually, it would be booked by now, but there are there are those who conversations being had that I have no doubt that there are conferences who are, which are scheduled here for 24, which are looking for someplace else, but won't let us know until they actually have someplace else to go. It's hard to find within the year or year and a half someplace to move a large conference. Have you heard that the conferences that are have been booked for a few years and are coming next year, have lost attendees for any kind of political reasons? No, and, and we wouldn't know the number of attendees until after the event, when they do an after action report, because in order to get paid, they have to uh, fulfill certain deliverables under the contract with us. Have you heard of anybody, any of your colleagues in Miami-Dade or Tampa, St. Pete or Jacksonville or the Panhandle, huge convention destinations as well, your competition, I suppose. <laughs> in some respects. But, uh, but colleagues in a way as well. Yes. Uh, have you heard a similar theme from anywhere else in Florida? Sure. Orlando, uh, Orlando has, has publicized a couple of conventions they've lost. Miami lost a, a Black County Managers Association meeting that was scheduled to come earlier this year. So For, the, for those reasons? For the same reasons. Yes, and, and there are a variety of them, whether it's the NAACP Travel Advisory or the Equality Florida Travel Advisory or the LUPAC Travel Advisory. You know, as you're talking travel advisories, it dawns on me that it goes both ways. I don't know, Senator Rick Scott actually posted a travel advisory. If you are, I, I don't want to quote him. <laughs> I know the quote. <laughs> but the, the gist of it was, if you are a communist or a socialist, don't come to Florida. That was a travel advisory for very different reasons. Well, in Visit Lauderdale, mm -hmm. our, uh, our tagline is everyone under the sun. And when we say it, we mean it. So we don't care what your politics are. We don't care who you are. We don't care who you Actually, you know what we do care? We care that you feel free to be you when you come to our destination. So everyone's welcome. Everyone under the sun is welcome. And we are going to continue to press that message because it's true for us. What happened statewide? Have you taken concerns to, I know Visit Florida is, is a quasi-governmental agency. It's public-private, right? Did I get that right? Mm -hmm. So. So there is some governmental ties. Yes. You know, if you are in Florida government, there's a, a man at the top at the moment, and there's a legislature at the top, and if you're not on board, then get off board. That's kind of the theme. Power has consequences and privileges. As do laws um, as have do consequences. Laws. Absolutely. So, so Visit Florida is the sort of what you do, but statewide. Correct. Have you been in touch with them at all? Uh, no, not about, although they are familiar with the message, with, with the issue and they have put out their own message. 
which aligns very much with what the leadership in Tallahassee is saying. But uh, I have spoken to uh, Florida Destinations, which is our advocacy arm. Visit Florida is not an advocacy arm. They are a marketing organization as we are. We mm -hmm. do not do advocacy. Right. But I haven't spoken to Destinations Florida, our marketing arm, and suggested it's time for the CVBs to have a conversation because lost business, losing jobs is, you know, when you're a destination which relies on tourism, whether you're a state destination, the state in general or Broward County specifically, and you rely on tourism, anything that, that can that can impact tourism, whether it's a hurricane or Zika or what it, the pandemic, that's bad for business. This looks like it could be bad for business. I believe it's an unintended consequence of these laws. I think it's something that might not have been contemplated. I know when I was in the legislature, I passed, you know, voted for lots of things that had unintended consequences, which I then tried to fix. I'm hoping we can try to fix this so that it doesn't get worse. What is your plan and Visit Lauderdale's plan in the, and, and again, I want to really stress that to your point, so much impacts tourism, perceptions impact tourism, perceptions of things that may not even be the case, and, and maybe you're facing some of that as well. But what's, what's the plan now? Is, is there one short term to just take on these kind of issues? We are going to do what we have been doing for 30 years. We are going to talk about how we are everyone under the sun, how we welcome everyone under the sun, how Broward County has people, residents from all over the world living there, and we bring visitors from all over the world to have the most amazing experiences about their lives. That's what we are going to continue to talk about, the diversity and inclusivity of our destination, the celebration of to be whoever you want to be, wear whatever you want to wear, identify however you want to identify. We simply don't care. Just come and have an amazing experience with beautiful beaches and great food and sunshine and warm weather. <laughs> clip, clip this tape and you can use it in one of your commercials. I want to, before we run out of time, I just want to, I, I actually over the weekend spoke to some of the organizers and convention planners that were among the groups, uh, one that pulled out and one that, that decided not to book in the first place. Um, that was a really big one, $13 million, a national toy retailers convention. Which we worked on for years. Yeah, I, I want to let you know that they said, even though I received in my public records request emails where they do cite a partisan atmosphere, they said that was not the reason. They said there were other reasons, all things being equal, that might have bubbled up to the top, but it did not. And their biggest issue, they told me, was their budget, the costs. South Florida is a pretty expensive place. Yes, but we, we are willing to negotiate price with any group that wants to come to, uh, to, come to us. And, and let, let me just also, before we do run out of time, let your Take viewers... Take your time. Oh. We, we've got all day. I don't let, want you well, to... well, I don't have all day. Um, <laughs> i got to go, go, go back out there and sell my, sell my destination. Um, <laughs> that it's not just the business we know we've lost. It's the request for proposals that we know we're not getting, yeah. that we're not even able to compete for the opportunity to bring conferences here. And I can't quantify that at all. But we are always willing to talk with groups, negotiate price, negotiate hotel room price, negotiate convention sp center space price, to bring the business here because that having that conference in our destination, the trickle-down economics, which I know is a also a, 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 a charged expression, but the ability to to stay in a hotel, to to keep the people employed and go to a restaurant, 
go out course, to Sawgrass the tourism Mills. Industry Sawgrass Mills Mall is the second largest tourism destination in the state of Florida behind. Guess what? I'm not going to say it, but it's got two ears. Um, you can say Disney on the show. We're <laughs> no, all, we're I don't want to. I don't want to market any other destination. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, it, but <laughs> all right, we need to bring people here, yes. and regardless of the cost, we are willing to work with everybody and anybody who wants to bring their convention here because that's what we do. Will you keep in touch and, and let us know how that goes? I will. Stacy Ritter, great to have you at the Thank table you. today. Thank you. Appreciate it. All right, up next, the incinerator fire and the fallout. Miami-Dade leaders are refuting the tone of a dire warning from the now former solid waste director that the county is running out of room for its trash. We're going to hear from the mayor next. Miami-Dade leaders are refuting the tone of the dire warnings from the now former solid waste director that the county is running out of room for its trash. The former director raised the red flags in his resignation letter this week that without a move to expand waste facilities, the county would have to stop all building, residential and commercial, by next year. The mayor and several commissioners from across the political spectrum called his words alarmist and off base while acknowledging the need to move forward and say they are doing so. No question Miami-Dade will be getting one or more new trash processing facilities to accommodate the growing amount of garbage. Part of the planning underway by this woman right there. Mayor Daniela Levine-Cava is here to talk trash with us today, <laughs> so to speak. Mayor, great to see you and thank you for being with us. Always. Thank you, Glenna. So that resignation letter kind of vaulted Miami-Dade waste into the public consciousness. No one really thinks about getting rid of their trash until they can't or something goes wrong. Um, so it sounded pretty serious. And I think from a public perspective, really, we uncovered some tensions there in the trash department. But the real, uh, the real headline, I think, was that advisement of a moratorium on building. Take us through that. Y you said that was alarmist. We talked earlier in the week. Take us through what is the story there? Yeah, thank you so much, Glenna. Uh, look, we always are working on ways to improve our trash collection system. Uh, we know, yes, we have landfills. We also had the incinerator, which of course burned down. So the incinerator was an important part, the waste to energy plant of our solution. We have recycling um, and so many, many aspects to it. So uh, we have collected trash throughout despite the closure of the Covanto waste to energy plant due to the fire. Nobody has faced any problems with garbage pickup. Uh, we've expanded our uh, use of landfill in other parts of the state and with commercial landfill operations. And so while we're working diligently to come up with a comprehensive approach, uh, we have a short-term solution and we're working on a longer-term strategy, which we'll be presenting uh, shortly. So nothing in that letter was um, a secret. It was all in previous communications with the board and uh, we're working diligently to address all of it. That that fire in February that took the Covanta incinerator offline, that, that act actually exacerbated and kind of put on the yes. front burner a lot of the planning that was going on. Um, and, and you talk about things that I think a lot of people may not realize. The this we're looking at it now in its burned form. This incinerated 
about half the trash in the county so that landfills weren't needed. It, it got rid of it. It was away and turned it into energy. So it's not just a trash facility. It's actually, you called it a waste to energy, and that's what it means. It, it actually reduces the need for the landfill. So the short-term solution is in place. Long-term, originally, it was to be rebuilt because it is 30, what, 40 years old on that site. That site now, though, is in the middle of a residential area in Durrell. So that plan was scrapped. What, where does the future of these kind of facilities go when you have a county still under development with people who say, not in my backyard? <laughs> yeah, it's certainly a very complex um, situation with lots of options that we have to thoroughly develop uh, and understand. And we have new approaches to dealing with waste. So we don't want to just do the status quo. We want to look at all of those opportunities. We're looking at approaching zero waste. We know we'll never be totally zero waste. How do you, but we how do, you certainly... do that? What's How do you get to zero waste? No, that is a very sincere question. How do you do that? Yes. Well, everybody has to be part of the solution. We all have to reduce our use and, and production of waste. We have to do better job of recycling. Uh, we have to reuse as much as possible. Uh, they say refuse is in the equation. Uh, composting is a part of the equation because a almost, well, I think it's about 40% of our trash is actually compostable. So we have to come up with ways to deal with trash um, in, in different ways so that we are having less of it that needs to be uh, landfilled. So that's what we're doing. We're exploring all of those opportunities, putting together a comprehensive update uh, so that people can make hard choices and uh, also figure out how we're gonna pay for all of this. And we, we will talk about that in just a minute. Um, the, what you, the letter, this resignation letter was five pages long most of it was accomplishments of the solid waste department over this now former uh, director's tenure. And then there was this warning that next year, the county's own rules mandate that unless there's five more years worth of capacity for trash, there has to be a building moratorium until there is. So he says it's next year, it's gonna run out, it will stop. It, will stop being five years worth of capacity. Is that accurate? So uh, this is a state law. It's not really just local. And uh, naturally, that's why we've come up with alternatives, aggressive alternatives, because a good percentage had been going to the Covanto Waste Energy Plant. Um, the estimates that we've seen uh, vary depending on circumstances. Uh, we're not uh, alarmed. We think we have strategies for um, building out uh, the timeline, and uh, that's how we're proceeding. The uh, the plan that you were talking about, I think the original intention was to present in June last month. Um, now it's September. Uh, I think at the commission meeting this week, I heard you say that you'll begin to brief commissioners in the coming weeks. So that's kind of happening right now. Can, can you give us a preview of what's in that plan? Yes, thanks. So first of all, the report that's coming now in September at the direction of the board, right, is specifically on the siting of a waste energy plant. So as you've said, it could take place at the same site in Doral. There were other sites that were proposed and have been evaluated by a consulting firm, Arcadis. Uh, I was briefed in detail this week about all of those options 
And of course, we're going to be bringing something to the board. But we are also bringing a broader, longer-term strategy um, that includes other aspects, uh, whether we can improve our recycling, our composting, other methods that exist now that maybe did not exist in the past. So um, we do have to have a midterm solution. We have the short term, we have to have a midterm. And then if we're going to build out some of these other opportunities, they will take longer. And we need to have the board support, uh, really policy decisions for the whole community what can, looking ahead. Can you um, detail some of those other options? Well, what, just what as I what saying, don't we know? For example, we have a very poor recycling rate, high levels of contamination, it's called. So when you recycle the wrong things, like you put plastic bags or you put plastic, you, don't, you put your recyclables in plastic bags, that's contamination. And then that whole load cannot be recycled. Um, people have what's called aspirational uh, recycling. So we urge everyone to go online to our Miami-Dade County Waste Recycling website and they can get all the specifics to recycle correctly. That is very important because we're, we're ending up throwing away stuff that could be recycled. Uh, we also could explore composting. Some uh, businesses are doing composting. Uh, we have currently our Depart uh, Division of Environmental Regulation, DERM, looking at composting of certain materials. Um, so we're, we're, that's an important strategy as well. And then we're open to other strategies. People are approaching us all the time with uh, new technologies that can improve our, uh, re reduce our waste, basically. The future of waste. All right, I have two more questions about the site and the costs. And I think the site question, a lot of people, especially in areas where this incinerator might be going, want to hear. So we will take a quick break and be back in a few minutes with that. We are back with Miami-Dade Mayor Daniela Levine-Cava talking trash, literally. Mayor, I want to talk about the sites of potentially new incinerators, new, bigger, more high-tech incinerators. One in the North Dade area, one in the South Dade area, I think is what I read is the proposal so far. So the one that was supposed to be rebuilt in Doral was built when there were no residents of Doral. That was kind of the outskirts. Now it's the in skirts in the middle of everything and boy has there been an uproar there how do you yes. place and, and deal with the potential population that might not exist yet but may when looking at where these new incinerators and all the infrastructure around them are going to go mm -hmm. yes thanks glenna it is really complicated because some of the sites that are being explored are outside the urban development boundary uh, that has uh, consequences potentially for other development outside urban development boundary. Then there's issues of connection to infrastructure, proximity to residences, uh, whether there are other facilities in the area that might be pollute, polluting. So many, many factors that are going into uh, this, this site selection. And also just to point out, again, there may be a kind of midterm solution and a longer term solution. So, um, you know, we, we have not even received uh, the costs yet for what it would even be to um, re rebuild or, or restart at the Covanta plant just with the uh, waste energy uh, component. We don't have that information, so we're not even fully 
with the facts to to make a decision. But yeah. we obviously will move forward with the information we have. And, and I just want to emphasize to put it into a bigger context. We have to have a long term solution, one that will be environmentally appropriate, long term, save taxpayers money. Uh, and, and that is also what we're trying to do in the midst of coming up with something to deal with the landfill capacity. We also need to look into the into the future for something that we think the public will really appreciate because it will be long term uh, environmentally friendly and cost effective. Yeah, trash is all about the money and the environment and the capacity <laughs> and the politics. And there's a lot of moving parts here. Is there any indication that that plant may well be rebuilt in that place because since and in the past couple of months especially since the fire uh, there have been some studies showing the toxicity in the air and Ill, uh, airborne illnesses that the neighborhoods around might be subject to now there is a huge outcry from the communities around it is there any possibility that's going to restart there so, Glenna, it's definitely one of the choices that is in the study. So we are looking at all of those options. Obviously, we want to uh, do the very best by our, our residents. We don't want to uh, cause any challenges or illnesses. You know, there's a plant up in West Palm that is more, is, is more modern technology uh, that uh, doesn't smell. Uh, it, it, it has other features that make it more desirable. But we are really, it, it's really too early to say. We definitely are very mindful of the concerns of the residents of Doral and, um, you know, very mindful that uh, we have to do our very best by, by our residents as well as to dispose of our waste. That's why we need to come up with a long-term solution. This week at the commission meeting, uh, one of your co commission colleagues, Anthony Rodriguez, was saying that the proposed in a ballpark $30 a year fee that may have to be an increase this year. So that's um, a couple of dollars a month, I suppose, still a rate hike. He said that might not have to happen if there are options like from the general fund or I suppose things that you're going to be putting in your plan. What, what do you see in that respect? Yes, definitely solid waste has told us that their needs are much greater than that pr proposed rate hike. Uh, in essence, it would be kind of delaying for the future uh, some of the costs that will need to be addressed. Um, and we'll see what the disposition of the board will be. They'll be reviewing that rate hike along with the total budget picture. Of course, the budget gets reviewed in September. We'll be putting out our proposed budget by July 15th, uh, so, so stay tuned. That is what we do. We are staying tuned. <laughs> Mayor, thanks so much. Appreciate you being with us today, as always. Thank you, Glenn, and thanks to your listeners. As if it could not get more difficult, families of those lost at Stoneman Douglas High chose to go to the preserved crime scene this week for the first time since. Some of them are part of a new book on school insecurity, and that is next. murder at
that Stoneman Douglas High five years ago vaulted the security of schools, or lack thereof, to the top of public consciousness. Many of the families who this week endured seeing the scene of the crime firsthand, many have dedicated their lives in various ways to making schools safer. Some are part of a new book whose author is one of South Florida's foremost security experts who works to train and advise schools and others nationally on safety and security. That book is called School Insecurity, and the author is Wayne Black, right here live from somewhere, I think in the front seat of his car, which is an idle move. Wayne, for you to join us today, I am very grateful for that. Well, I'm happy to be here, Glenna. Thank you. So uh, your new book just came out. And for, for those who don't know you in South Florida, and I can't imagine there is anyone who doesn't know that you are really um, part of the gold standard with roots in Miami-Dade investigations so long ago, uh, part of the gold standard of security and lately school security. Your book that just came out, in it you say that unfortunately there will be more in the dedication incidentally to the victims of such attacks. Why are you so certain? Well, Glenna, there always is, isn't there? I mean, every year we have more and more uh, school shootings and and uh, we ramp up. Schools are concerned about it across the country after there's a shooting and then after about 30 days, they sort of um, relax and think, well, it can't happen to me. So what I did in the book is I actually put in my checklist. It's really a, it's really a book for parents, giving parents the, the proper questions to ask and, and uh and so they can go to the school board and the school and say, what are you doing to protect my child? And I think that's really important. That's what will change things. And I, I want to I say that I kind of sped read through it last night because it just came out. And that checklist was one of the things that really caught my attention because as a parent, um, you send your kids to school. And I think now there's much more of a public consciousness about security since since not only Marjorie Stoneman Douglas, but so many school shootings. But these, this is really an empowering way to give a tool to a parent to flat out ask about a, B, C, the perimeter, the checkpoints, are they enforced? Do police have a blueprint of my school? So that was, that was really helpful. How much of the lessons are in, in this book are, are from Marjorie Stoneman Douglas? Well, a lot of them, we analyzed Marjorie Stoneman Douglas in there and everything back to Columbine, Uvalde in Texas. And so we've studied those. Um, some of that is in there, including the uh, a manifesto at the beginning, which I've, I've been told is is a little dark, but I think it it needs to be uh, it needs to be read. But yes, yeah, it's, it's an aggregate of of what's happened and and how to how to protect schools. There's there are a bunch of reasons, Glenna, why schools have active killers, active shooters, but there's not one good reason. There's no reason for a child not to come home from school. And as we saw so repeatedly as the investigation into Marjorie Stoneman Douglas unfolded and, and is still, the layers of missteps from so long ago right up until that day, um, that's one of the toughest lessons I think for everyone to learn about how much this could have been prevented. So uh, one of the parents, now a school board member, Lori Aladef, was interviewed. You sat down with her. She, in the book, seemed like she really um, opened up and got very granular with you. Uh, were other, did you want to talk to other parents? How, how did they respond to you? 
I talked to a few. I talked to Max Schachter, who's also very involved now. Um, Lori's interview was was tear jerking. Yeah. Uh, she got so, in such granular level, but uh, that's what I think uh, parents need to see now. What would be to you a 100% fail-safe, secure school? Well, um, part of the part of the use of the guidelines, um, planning. Look, um, the side with the best plan wins. It's really that simple. Schools have to have a perimeter. If I can walk, and I do this as I travel around the country doing assessments, if I can walk from the street into a classroom, that's a big problem. And it's really not about guns as much as it is about layers of security. A perimeter, uh, a checkpoint, a door, the doors are locked, those kinds of things. So, um, And the other thing that schools aren't thinking about is fentanyl. Probably 75% of the schools I visit around the, the country haven't thought about having Narcan. It's over the counter now. And we've had 100,000 accidental overdoses in the country, some involving schools, and yet uh, some schools don't spend the $33 for the uh, Narcan. What is, you know, now that you bring up budget, is that, I, I know in the book, um, I thought you really talked about wh why even question a budget for security because that questions how much is your child's life worth and I thought that that was very resonant to me when I read that but but budgets are a very real factor so when you travel the country and you go to schools large and small in in districts that might not be a, a resource district how do you handle that with them when they say, look, we don't have a budget for security or we have a limited budget, we have we have $30,000 for cameras, for example, I'd liken that to leaving Miami and telling the guy at the gas station, I want $5 worth of gas, I'm driving to New York. You can't get there from here. So when they tell me that, Glenna, I say, well, how much money do you spend on that teacher's uh, conference in Las Vegas? And so that sort of... Uh, that sort of gets their attention. Uh, school administrators may not like the book. Parents are going to love it. Teachers are going to love it. But I predict that some boards and administrators may not like it. Have you had any pushback on that yet? Well, not yet because it's just out. It's really um, on Amazon on the 25th. So um, I get a lot of pushback, though, when I do the, do the assessments and I say that. And then I just revert to what I said in the book, Glenna, what's, what's a child's life worth? For all the, the parents and schools watching this morning, how many of those, you mentioned earlier that you do site assessments, how, what percentage out of those schools, when you go on campus, can you go through the front door and into a classroom? In Florida, it's pretty difficult now because of the laws um, about assessment tools and things like that that the Florida Department of Education has put in place. But I can tell you that in, in Georgia, Delaware, um, Colorado, I can typically have been walking right in. Um, uh, a, the principal had a meeting at, at uh, 9 o'clock with the principal. I was sitting in a classroom when the kids came in at 8.15. So it's it's easy to do it. And this is what we want parents to do. I mean, we can't be everywhere. Parents should should do this using the guidelines and ask the question: Who's in charge? Who's who really owns security and life safety for my student? 
You know, we don't often talk about books on this program, but in light of our community, in light of what uh, Marjorie Stoneman Douglas families endured again this week, I think this was a really important conversation to have uh, because, because what is in that book is, and what the parents have been doing as legacies, the foundations, their training uh, modules is, is really something very, very valuable. Wayne Black, thank you so much for pulling over for us today. It's my pleasure. Thank you. And we will be right back. To re-watch today's interviews or listen to our podcast, just scan this QR code right there with your phone, and it takes you right to the This Week in South Florida section of Local10.com. And you are such a big part of this program, I want to hear from you. You can connect so easily on social media. Follow us at Glenna WPLG. Have a beautiful Sunday.